All right, well, we are entering our time of teaching. We do this every week at Sedaris, and today we're going to be, uh, we're in the summer of Psalms, so we're going through the Psalms. We're doing this every summer. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it and open up to Psalm 131? If you don't have a copy, there's some on the ends of the rows. Just ask somebody to pass it down. We're a family here at Sedaris, so uh, don't be shy. Just say, hey, pass one of those down to me and turn to Psalm 131. The Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible, so if you kind of open to the middle, you should be able to find them. Flip to the right, to the left, Psalm 131. Uh, And this week's psalm is simple. Just three verses, short, simple, and my hope, and uh, I'm calling my shot here, I'm going to give a simple, short sermon for you this week because I've had a few really long ones this summer, so thank you for long-suffering. Those are important topics. Like last week, we talked about what is worship. Big topic, took a little bit of time. This is a nice, short psalm, and we are going to uh, talk about it. It's all about what does it mean to rest. We've talked about the psalms are like learning how to pray, and how prayer is like life, and life is like prayer, and how do we turn to the psalms as the master instructor for how to live and how to pray and to live life with God. So that's what we're going to be doing today. You know, if you... um, if you struggle with prayer, if prayer is something uh, that you don't feel like you're good at, that you feel like, man, I'm not uh, an expert in this, or I'm not good enough, you know, we think prayer is what good people do when they're at their very best. Some, some of us think about prayer this way. It's not. Prayer is elemental language. It's not advanced language. It's elemental. It's the simplest of things that we can do for God. So we don't have to become good enough or knowledgeable enough or have the right language. We simply need to speak to God. That's why today I'm going to tell you how all of us have a lot to learn from a man named Owen. Owen is my nine-month-old son. He's going to teach us a lot about prayer, and about life today. So let's pray elementally and ask God to be with us. Father, we thank you for our life. We thank you for this community. We thank you for the scriptures. They are like water to our parched mouths. May may we be filled with you this morning as we read your word and we learn what it means to come near, draw near to you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My son Owen was born November 9th. (laughs) Is that correct? My wife's up and kids. November 9th or 7th? 7th. November 7th. He hasn't even had a birthday yet. How am I supposed to remember this stuff? Okay. November 7th, 2018. And since that day, he has not missed a meal. And if you are in pediatrics, you know, kids are supposed to eat about every three hours. So every three hours since November 7th, 2018, Owen has had a nice meal. And it's tiring. Particularly for his mother, Allie, and for me as well. But he's never missed a meal. Why is this important? Psalm 131 is going to teach us about contentedness. 
contentedness, which is being satisfied with things as they are. And Owen, when he is feeding in his mother's arms, is the most content human being on the face of the earth. He is completely content. Completely content. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Are you content? Are you content with your lot in life? Are you always wanting someone else's stuff, someone else's talents, someone else's relationships? Are you always living in your head, waiting for that future development? Like once it becomes like this, then I'll be content. Are you always living in your head, thinking about the future, or are you living in the now? Are you present? Are you always romancing in sort of this codependent relationship, the what-ifs of life? The what-ifs. Are you beating yourself up over and over again about mistakes, missed opportunities, paths not taken? I need this psalm as a church planter. We started this church Four years ago, Allie and I have I've been in Seattle now for almost six years. Man, I need this psalm to be content with however things are. There are three verses in this psalm, and they'll teach three godly character traits. Humility, contentedness, and hopeful patience. I picked this psalm this week. I didn't know. You know, the psalm series is interesting because we're doing all 150 psalms over the next 15 years. So we have a lot of options, okay, of what to pick. And I really struggled to pick a psalm. And I picked this one because this week I was just sort of torn up a little bit. I had a friend of mine who's a church planter come to me. And I was just meeting up. I just reached out to him and said, hey, let's get together. Just check in, see how things are going. And I had no idea he was going to tell me this. He hasn't even told many people in his, he hasn't told the whole congregation, but he said, you know what, we're just out of place financially and with a number of people who are really bought in and taking ownership of the mission that we can't go on anymore. And so August is their last month. And this was the third friend in the last six months church planning friend who's told me the same thing and I'm just like man how do I not live in my head about what might be and how can I be content with the work and the ministry that I can do right now so this psalm like like every week is God preaching to me and so I'm just trying to pass along to you what he's done for me am I content knowing that God holds me in his arms that God holds me in his arms, no matter what happens, no matter if this church goes or stops going, no matter how big this church gets or the impact we have in the city, on city renewal, it, it, does it matter or can I be content? Can you be content with whatever God has given to you? So if you're there with me, Psalm 1 31, let's read this together. Here we go. This is a song of ascent. David, King David is the author, says this. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. Three verses, three character traits of someone who truly knows their place in God's world. Humility, contentedness, and hopeful patience. So let's look at verse one. Let's look at verse one. This is the precondition to contentedness. This is the precondition. If you do not have this, you will never have contentedness. It is the precondition. And it is humility. So he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So when he says my soul is not lift, or my heart is not lifted up, what he's saying, he's not puffed up. He's not puffed up. He is not thinking of himself more highly than he ought. And then he says, and I do not think of things too great and too marvelous for me. Meaning he's not caught in his head about dreams that aren't his to dream, that aren't his to dream. Jeremiah 45, 5 says this. I think we have this. We'll throw it up on the screen. Jeremiah 45, 5 says this. And do you seek great things, or says, do, and do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, this is God speaking to us through the prophet Jeremiah, For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. By flesh, he means the things that perish, the worldly things. They will not last. They do not last forevermore. But I will give you. He's going to give us something. What is he going to give us? This is exciting. I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Do not seek great things for yourself. Instead, what I'll give you is your life. That is the prize of war. Humbling, isn't it? Humbling. We can get so caught up in lofty dreams of grandeur, and we miss out on the beautiful simplicity of the prize of war, which is life with God. Is that enough for you? This is just one of many simple images that we have. We're about to get into verse 2. This image of a, of a baby in the arms of his or her mother. This is the simplicity of life in God's world. So you have this, this picture of a nursing child. God as mother, and we get to be the helpless baby. Jesus in John 15 talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now picture, not just one small vine and you're like a pretty important branch. Think of the Sonoma Valley. Think of wine fields as far as the eye can see. Jesus is the great vineyard and we are but a little branch connected. Last week we talked Psalm 95. We talked about God as the shepherd and we are the sheep. God is the The shepherd, and he's the pasture. He's the shepherd, and he's the pasture. Are you okay being the sheep? Sheep aren't too impressive, if you don't know much about sheep. 
Are you okay with that? You see, the picture constantly throughout Scripture is God is big and we are small. But we are alive. We are alive. And we get to be a part of God's very big plan. Is that enough for you? Is that enough? So let's look at verse 2 here. We talked about the precondition of humility. Now we'll talk about the resting state of contentedness. Contentedness. Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now there's some debate among scholars this word in the Hebrew weaned. Uh, is it talking about an actively nursing child or a, a child who has just finished the process of nursing and has now been weaned off? So in the ESV, they've translated it weaned. It could mean both. It doesn't matter that much. The picture is the same of a child who is resting and content in the arms of their mother. In the arms of their mother. Owen is never more alive than when he is motionless. <laughs> <laughs> in Allie's arms. It's just the most beautiful picture. He's never more alive. Uh, oftentimes, Allie works. She's a nurse at Seattle Children's Hospital. She'll come home after a 13-hour shift, and she'll come home, and Owen will see her, and it'll take him a second because, you know, he's a baby. <laughs> and then it clicks, Mom, and it's, it's like he lunges with his whole body. I don't even know how he does it. Like, he lunges away from me, and I have to grab him because he sees his mom. And he knows that in her, he will find rest. He will be content. He will be the happiest that he's been all day, even though I've been pumping him full of milk out of the bottle. I mean, I like as much as he can get. Go to sleep. No, but Allie, when he sees, when he sees her, he knows. He knows the promised land is here. So that's contentedness. Being more alive than ever even when you're motionless. Wow. You mean not being busy? Not accomplishing all these things? Accomplishing literally nothing? That is contentedness. Do you have that? Have you ever experienced that? Um, I was listening to a podcast this week about gambling. Let that sit for a sec. No, I wasn't trying to figure out how to crack the code, <laughs> okay? I wasn't figuring out how can I get ahead, but, but it was about the ethics of gambling. Now, see, gambling, there's nothing actually in the act of gambling that's necessarily sinful, right? Playing poker, blackjack, roulette, there's nothing sinful about a little ball that spins around a wheel. There's nothing, but, but for most people, the motivation of the heart that leads one to gamble is sinful. Why, why is that? What, what's, what's going on? Well, what's going on in the heart is the heart is saying, the motivation of the heart is saying, I am not content with what God has given me. I am not content. And therefore, I am going to transition, cross-reference last week's sermons, my worship from God to Lady Luck. in the hopes that I might fast forward my life, my income, my opportunities to a new level now, rather than waiting patiently upon God. 
You see, it's, it's not bad to, to have a longing for more. And, and unfortunately, gambling sort of preys upon the poor more than anyone. And it's not wrong to, to want to have more and be able to provide for your family, but to say, I'm going to shift my worship from God and be content in what he has given me, my daily bread, and say, I must have more, and so I will worship something else, luck, in order to get it. You see how that is a perversion of the heart. And it really comes with a lack of contentedness, that our resting state is not being content in the Lord. Verse number three, let's read that. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So now the psalmist, King David, turns and he says, he's talking now to the people. He says, I want you to have what I have had. I want you to have the precondition of humility. I want you to experience the resting state that I've experienced of contentedness. And I want you to be hopeful and patient. That, that is. So the precondition, humility, the resting state, contentedness, and then the resulting action is hopeful patience. Not begrudging patience. Not fearful patience. Hopeful Patience. I know this God. I know that he will give me what he knows that I need. And I am willing to wait patiently and hopefully for that. Whether it comes in this life or in the life to come. You hear that? Now, from this time forth and forevermore. James 5, 7 says this. Be patient. James is, is uh, the brother of Jesus who helped start the church in Jerusalem after Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, and he writes this letter called the letter uh, of James, and he writes this. Great letter if you've never read the book of James. Read that, the whole thing. He says this, Be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late Rains. What he's talking about. The early rains are the fall rains, and the late rains are the spring rains. You see? Guess what? There's a lot of waiting in between the early and the late rains. But farmers get this. They understand that you cannot rush, that God has not only set, uh, is not sovereign over uh, just the way things are, he's also sovereign over the seasons. So he's created the rain, and he's created the seasons that bring the rain. Farmers understand how to be patient. Content people don't overreact. You see this? The resting state of contentedness keeps you from overreaction. Overreaction gets you into a lot of trouble. Sell, 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 sell. Go, 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 go. Fix, 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 fix. No, the contented person, he waits for the early rains and the late rains. That's not us. Let's just be honest. Why wait? Why wait? We can fix it ourselves. Why wait? We figured this out. Why wait? Says the crooked heart of men. Let's not wait for the Lord to come. Let's not wait for the, the early and the late rains. Let's figure out how to make it rain. We're close, if we haven't already. You see, Owen has never been to school. 
Guess what? Owen has never earned a dollar in his life. Owen, he's never written code. Owen has never formed his own LLC. But the more educated, the more wealthy, the more technologically savvy, the more entrepreneurial a person is or a society is, the harder it is for that person or society to know humility, to know contentedness, and to know hopeful patience. It's just true. It's just true. And guess what, friends? We live in the most educated city in America. Per capita, there is more post graduate degrees in this city than in any other city in the United States. The most educated. Guess what? We're also also the most wealthy per capita city in all of America. More millionaires per capita in Seattle than anywhere else in the United States. We're also one of the most technologically savvy if you haven't figured it out yet. We're also one of the most entrepreneurial cities that there is. It's just on, on the way into church, y'all probably aren't up early enough for this, but at eight or at seven forty-five every day on Sunday, every, not every day, but on Sunday, NPR eighty-eight five connects you to Jazz Blues and NPR News has the Sunday puzzle quiz. Have you heard this? Great stuff, and they pick somebody from all over the world. And this morning, this morning it was a young teacher, public high school teacher from Seattle. And dude crushed the quiz. I mean, you can just tell the hosts are like, dude, this guy's smart. Seattleites are smart. You're probably smart. You're probably really smart, and I'm, I'm happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Not all of us have this gift. But it's going to be hard for you to find contentedness. Because you're probably going to make a lot of money, too. Some of you are going to start your own companies, A lot of you guys are writing code for world-changing organizations that that we can fix it. Why do we need to wait on the Lord? This is a hard city to find contentedness. But friends, this is what God wants for you. And this is what he wants for every human being that lives in our city. Contentedness in whatever you have. Whatever you are. Whatever you've done. That's That's what he wants. So it's hard. But it does not mean that smart people, wealthy people, powerful people, entrepreneurs cannot find contentedness. You can. How do I know? Who wrote this psalm? King David. Unrivaled as a king of Israel. It's why he's the only king you know about. He was the best, the smartest. He made technological advances for his kingdom that no one else did besides maybe his son Solomon. He had everything at his disposal, yet he found contentedness in his Lord and God. So it's, it's there. It's there to be had. Other, other good examples of this in, in the scriptures. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. So the prophets predicted there would be one coming in the wilderness that would cry out, and make a way for, for, for the Messiah, the Savior of God's people to come. That Savior is Jesus. And this was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes on the scene. He prepares the way. And this is what Jesus 
Whatever you think about Jesus, if you're not sure yet if he's the son of God or the Messiah or the savior of the world, that's okay. That's part of why we exist as a church, to help you consider that, ask the questions, think about it. But, but even if you don't believe that, like I do, he is the most powerful name in all the world. Like, so he's a big deal whether or not he is what I say he is. That guy, Jesus, this is what he said about John the Baptist. We just call him John the Baptist not because that's his denomination, but because he baptized people, okay? This is what he said about John. He said, this dude here, you see this dude? He is the greatest human being ever born of a woman. High praise coming from Jesus. But this is what John said about himself. I am unworthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. You see, he got it. He had the precondition of humility. He knew where he stood in God's grand scheme. Even though he is the greatest human being ever born of a woman, up until that point, he knows he's nothing compared to Jesus. Peter, Peter, you know who Peter is? Peter is one of the 12 disciples that helped start the church after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Guess what this same Jesus said about Peter? He said, hey, Peter, you're not going to handle this well, but I've got some news for you. You are the rock that I'm going to build my church upon. Power. Prestige. Reputation. Now, you read through the gospel accounts, you read through the book of Acts, Peter doesn't always get it right. <laughs> he sort of struggles to figure this whole thing out. He chops some ears off. You know, he gets called Satan by Jesus. So he doesn't always get it right, but eventually he gets it and he realizes, I am just a tool in the hand of God. I will do whatever God tells me to do. It's his plan, not mine. He has the precondition of humility, which leads to contentedness, and you see him grow in that over time. And he has, of course, you can read his letters that he's written, a hopeful patience waiting upon Christ to return and fix all things. What about James? I mentioned James earlier. James, the brother of Jesus, had the same mother, different fathers. <laughs> if you don't understand how that works, come to Sedaris 101. Uh, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But he had brothers and sisters. So they are related. They lived the same family history. They grew up together. And guess what? During Jesus' life, before his death and his resurrection, James was kind of like, this guy talks a big game. I'm not so sure he's any better than me. Because you don't see him following Jesus during Jesus' ministry. But then something happens. He sees Jesus die, and then he sees him after the resurrection. And he starts to worship him as his Lord, Savior, and Messiah. Pretty powerful stuff. He gets it. He starts to see things clearly. This is who... Jesus is, and this is who I am. He has the precondition of humility, and it leads to contentedness in his heart, and he writes some of the most amazing things about patience and contentedness. So let me just read to you from the same letter, the letter of James. This is what he says, talking to the church, teaching them how they ought to live, and he says this, what causes quarrels amongst you, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions instead of on the things of God. Then he says, you adulterous people. Drop down to verse 6. But, but he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What's this make you think of? Psalm 131. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Only in his arms will you find contentedness. Contentedness. This is the picture. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And you will be like a baby nursing, content, happy. You're like Owen in Allie's arms. It's good. That's what you should want. Let me read one more thing. Same chapter. Same chapter, verse 13. You may have heard this before. Now he's going to teach us how to pray. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, for those of you who are saying that, who, who sort of dream that dream and are sure that that's what God wants to give you, this is what he says. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, you ought to pray, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. You see, you see that's just a sh- tiny shift. In it's not that I don't make plans. It's not that I don't write up uh, new proposals for business. It's not that I don't try to make a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. But I say in my heart, if the Lord wills. I'm content either way. If I do go there or I go there, I am content because I am resting in the arms of the Lord. Then he goes on to say this. As it is, you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. It's evil. It's evil. Doesn't mean that we don't ask God for good things, but it does mean that we don't demand things from God. Because we are at rest in our soul knowing that our contentedness does not depend on getting a yes. If, if your contentedness depends on God saying yes to your prayer, you have not found contentedness. Of course, Owen cries out, gimme, gimme. <laughs> but even if Ali holds him, he is content. Now, let me tie this to Jesus, because we've said always in the Psalms, they're pointing us forward so that we would recognize the Messiah when he comes. So Matthew 19, Jesus draws all the children to himself, and he says, listen, you've got to be like these children if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to figure this out. Figure out what? How to trust like a child. He's not saying you've got to forget everything you've learned. You've got to try to unwrap all of the education or give away all your wealth. He's just saying you've got to learn how to trust like children. How do children trust? Children see themselves as they are. They don't live in a world that they aren't in, right? I mean, think about how big your cul-de-sac felt when you were a little kid. You were in it. 
you're like, this is the kingdom. And then you grow up, you're like, that was podunk. Like, <laughs> but, but that's what's great about children. They are present. They're like, this is it. This is, this is where I'm meant to be. They live in the world that they're in. They don't try to live in some, some other world. Children also do this. They know where to run. When they're hurt, when they need somebody, they always go to their parents. They inherently trust their parents. Now, obviously, human parents aren't always worthy of that kind of trust. Maybe your parents weren't, but they know where to run to their makers. Children are content with whatever they have. Because why? It's normative, right? So we might look at a child who has less, and we might, oh, they must be so bummed out that they don't have everything. No, they, they, this is it. This is what I thought. I thought... Dads only knew how to make macaroni and cheese. I literally thought, until I went over to my buddy's house, (laughs) and they're making other stuff, you know? My dad would just take us to McDonald's. I've passed along that generational sin to my children. (laughs) Just right down the hill. Okay. You know, if, if, if you've ever been to the developing world, you understand this, right? You say, like, how are these people so happy? How are they so content? They clearly don't have everything that they could have. But we're so caught off guard by it because we just assume that you cannot be content without everything that Americans have. And it's just not true. We're, We're believing some lies. So let me ask you these questions again. The questions I asked at the outset. Are you content with your lot in life? Are you content? Are you always desiring someone else's stuff, talents, relationships, church? Are you always living in your head, waiting upon future developments to manifest this dream that you have, or are you living in the now, the present? Are you in unhealthy codependence with the what-ifs, the missed opportunities? Are you beating yourself up over these mistakes? Jesus says, stop. Now, this is the point in the sermon where I just need to get a little aggressive with you. Just warning you. I'm going to get aggressive with you. This is part of what God's asked me to do. Stop. Stop. And be content. You say, well, it's so easy for you to say. No, it's not easy for me to say. I struggle with this every single day and I preach to myself, stop and be content with what God's given you. Stop trying to be someone that you are not. Stop trying to be your best friend. Stop trying to be your own solution. Stop striving for the world, the media, the elite's definition of success. Stop pretending that God is somehow surprised at the good or bad choices that you've made because he is not. Stop acting as if he doesn't have a plan to get you from here to there, wherever here may be. Stop. Stop living in a dream world. Live in the real world where God loves you and he will draw near to you if you draw near to him. Just stop and be content. Because, because, if you're not listening, start listening now. Because contentedness was purchased at a great cost that you know not of. It is not just like God saying, be content. It's better this way. Positive thinking. It was purchased at a great cost. 
He has opened the way for you to draw near to him. He has opened the way so that you will never thirst again. He has opened the path of contentedness. He has chopped it clean and clear by the machete of the cross. Jesus' body has been broken. His side has been pierced. His blood has been poured out. He has paid the penalty for your sin and your rebellion. He hung there in your place and absorbed the wrath of God's righteous judgment, poured out against all your iniquity. He bought it at a great cost so that you could be content again. So when you refuse to be content, you are saying to God and to the world, thanks, but that's not enough for me. I need more. I'm special. Don't say that. Your contentedness was purchased at a great cost. Owen and Grayson, both my sons, they love their mother way more than they love me. <laughs> they love their mother. They see her beauty, her peaceful presence, and guess what? They know nothing of their own birth story. I do. I was in the room. I was in the room. Have you ever been in a labor and delivery room? Oftentimes for 24 hours, or more, painful, deep contractions and pushing that bring you to this moment where the baby is brought to the mother and for the first time sits on her chest. It's beautiful. But, but it's not beautiful. It's not pretty. It is the most profound juxtaposition of pain and happiness that you will ever see. You think God didn't plan that? You think he didn't write Psalm 131? In that moment, all disheveled and sweaty, and there's blood everywhere, and in that moment, it's the most beautiful moment of tender care that you will ever experience in your life. This is the picture that we should have when we think of Christ. This is the beautiful labor of the cross. Your contentedness, my friends, was secured at a great cost with much pain and sacrifice that is beyond. It's too marvelous for us to even comprehend. So be content and rest in the full and finished work of Christ Jesus, your Savior, on the cross. Rest and be content in the Savior's work because he has rebirthed you into a life everlasting. And, and don't miss this. Please call your mother. Seriously, call her after the service and say, I never knew what it cost you to love me the way you did. And your love reminded me of God's love for me. Just thank you. Call, call your mother. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, for, for rebirthing us into the kingdom of God.
that by faith in you, in your finished work on the cross, and by the resurrection, that we too can have new life. We can die to our old self and come alive to our new, eternal, heavenly body that lives now with you in contentedness and will live with you forevermore in contentedness. God, help us to know that contentedness right now, in this moment. Help, help us to repent of, of all the times we say, yes, Jesus, I, I, I appreciate that, but I need some more if you really want me to be content. Help us to know the beautiful labor of the cross and rest in the arms of Christ. It's in his name we pray.